Peter R. Bregan, M.D., is called the conscience of psychiatry for his many decades of successful reform efforts. His scientific and educational work provide the foundation for modern criticism of drugs and ECT and lead the way in promoting more caring and effective therapies. His books include Talking Back to Prozac, Toxic Psychiatry, Medication Madness, Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, and now Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming Negative Emotions. Welcome to the Dr. Peter Bregenauer. Hello, my wonderful, wonderful audience. Bless all of you. The amazing looking woman you have on the screen today is Christy Lee. Uh, she's a, a really a brilliant and thoughtful journalist. Um, actually, I'm going to give you a brief introduction to her because she's really important to me in Ginger. And um, and then I'll catch you up just briefly on the book. And then we'll go into some very interesting stuff that uh, Christy has uh, been doing and learning about. All right, so Christy Lee's a journalist. And I think we had some old contacts or knowledge of each other. Uh, somehow we, we got together again. And um, Christy... Uh, called us and said that she was doing a replacement on Alex Jones' uh, channel. Now, Alex Jones is somebody that I'd heard of over the years. I'd listened to some. Sometimes he seemed to make a lot of sense, but then I'd hear, oh, no, you know, he's a um, conspiracy theorist. Um and uh, someday I'll do a show about conspiracy theories and its origins. But So he's a conspiracy theorist and so on and so forth. And um, Ginger would develop these sayings over the last year with like um, yesterday's uh, conspiracy theories or today's news and things like that. Because that's what we're discovering in our book that, I mean, things that were like... Um, the uh, Great Reset was called the Conspiracy Theory. And then John Kerry comes out, who is a very important consultant to the president, comes out and says that they're, do they're doing the Great Reset, the new administration when they go into office. But wait a minute, how can you be doing the Great Reset? It's a conspiracy theory. So we have become more and more doubting about uh, about uh, people being called conspiracy theorists. And meanwhile, Ginger had been listening to Alex Jones every morning and giving me all kinds of interesting, reasonable information. One of the few people who actually uh, uh, knew more than we did about important things we were interested in, um, especially in the political area, not the scientific area. So Christy invited me to be on a show for an hour that where she was replacing Owen on um, Alex Jones' channel. And uh, we just had a lovely show. We, we talked together for an hour. And um, I mean, it was just delightful and, and informative. And in the middle of the show, we get an email or a message. Um, Alex Jones wants me on tomorrow. And um, Alex Jones has a huge and marvelous audience. Um, probably up at most great majority of the audience are Christians and the great majority of them are really involved in activism and critical thinking and evaluating uh, the world. Um, 
So um, I went on Alex um, Jones, and this man described as a wild-eyed, overly Christian. You know, it's very bad in America to be overly Christian um, uh, show host. It felt like I was talking to the brother I wish I'd had. Uh, it was like instantly I just could feel the man's reality, his truth, his conviction. We understood each other. So in the middle of the show, Alex did two things. First, he starts out and he says, I'm going to buy a thousand of your books and we'll sell them. You know, Doc, we have a website. We sell these books. And then the show, maybe he said 2,000. So goes on a while and he said, I'm going to buy 4,000 of your books <laughs> and, um, uh, and put them up. And then, then he uh, says a little further on, come on Saturday. I'm going to film you on Saturday. And um, then we talked for another hour on Saturday. And over those three days, including, we had a new huge peak in sales. Now, these are all pre-publication sales. The book is coming out. This, this, this is September 14th. The book is coming out now. Being, uh, we've seen printed copies on video, and it's going to be going out first and foremost to the 14,000 people have ordered it in advance. But we got the biggest peak ever, despite how well we've been doing. And and we sold about 3,000 books over those three days. And um, and because of the spinoff of other people getting in touch with me because of that, um, we've never gone down, uh, like, very low. I mean, today, we, we've, yesterday, towards 260 books, I mean, and this is, uh, you know, for pre-publication, this is mind-blowing in all, all my years. So we're just, we owe you a great deal. You, Christy Lee, started this. Um, and that's about all I have to say. Um, <laughs> Christy Lee is a journalist who, like many good journalists, could not or decided not to survive when she got into the stratospheric class of journalism. Because there... As most of you listening to this show know, the people are really spokespersons for the global predators and the drug companies and used to be the tobacco companies. And uh, they're just up to, to no good. And they're part of the global predatory system. And our book, by the way, is uh, COVID-19 and the global predators. And you can buy it now still on our own website, which is uh, www we are the prey.com we are the prey.com and you'll get it at a cheaper price than any other place because my wife is the publisher of this particular book 700 600 pages a couple of thousand citations really amazing book now take over christy <laughs> all right well for those that don't know about me my i was just telling dr bregan that my most recent Work in journalism was as a main evening news anchor in California, of all places. I had moved my children there from Ohio, where I had been a longtime news anchor there. Uh, 
I'm so blessed to have worked in a field that I wanted to do as a kid, you know, watching TV, watching the news anchor TV. Our news anchors were local celebrities. And I just thought that it would be the coolest thing <laughs> to be able to write, which I've always loved doing, um, talk to people, meet new people, which I've always loved doing, and then be able to tell people's stories and have a bit of that performance element to it because my father was in theater and I really uh, took after him and wanted to make him proud. So super blessed to have been able to break into such a competitive field and uh, rise to the top, if you will, in my hometown and work right next to the man that I grew up watching, although he probably wouldn't appreciate that I said I grew up watching him (laughs) and then worked as his co-anchor. But really was a dream come true for me. And then when I had this opportunity and was wooed to California, if you will, it was just an offer I couldn't refuse. Now, the timing of that was really strange because when I moved out there to start my news contract in California, it was March 16th of 2020. Well, what do you think that that fell in line with? (laughs) The Mm -hmm. whole place had shut down. And so One of the motivations for me to get out of my hometown, which I'd been working in as a news anchor and in news in general for over a decade, was because I wanted to challenge myself and I wanted to learn about a new part of the country and talk about new things. Because once you've stayed in a news market for a number of years, you end up feeling like you're repeating a lot of the same stories every year because markets and their neighborhoods have the same concerns and same events and things like that. So I felt like it was getting a little bit stale and I wanted to challenge myself. Well, what was interesting about that is moving to California and the whole country and world really was hit by this pandemic. I ended up talking about the same thing (laughs) nearly every day, which is not what I had planned. Um, But there was a couple of things. So the two main stories of that year became every day, pandemic, numbers of deaths running across your screen. Obviously, I don't need to tell you, you all experienced it with me. I just happened to be on the other side of the camera. And also, that was also an election year. So every year, so every day, um, it was going in and talking about the same thing. But what was challenging for my co-anchor and I in California is he and I were very like-minded in foundational journalism, telling people both sides with free from sensationalism, free from adjectives, and letting our audiences decide for themselves. Well, that was not what was happening in particularly the scripts that were coming down from national. So the way local news works is basically you have your local stories, of course, but every local newscast has a national block or they may lead with national news, which happened a lot over the past year. So what happens is your local news anchors and your producers aren't necessarily writing those stories, but they do have the authority as a managing editor, if you will, to go in and adjust, make adjustments as they can. So what my co-anchor and I found so astonishing is as the year progressed, as the election heated up and as the pandemic heated up, if you will, our scripts they were coming down from network or national were unrecognizable to what we were used to as far as foundational journalism is concerned they were flooded with adjectives they were very one-sided and in many cases they didn't even have sources there was just blatant sentences thrown in and so it's like he and i were like wait a minute we're supposed to read to our audience things as fact and what 
I'm the authority, like, according to me, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> that's not how this works at all. That's why you always need to perk up and hear, make sure you're hearing according to, or police say, or whatever your source is. If you're, if you're hearing your news anchors spouting off sentences with no according to, then are, are, is it according to them? So he and I were doing the best we could to take out the adjectives, to try and provide balance. But there was only so much we could do. Um, when we would toss to what we call a package, which is where we say, Christine Frizzell has the story. And then it goes to her story and she's introducing it and she's voicing it. That's what, what we call a package. When we would go to that, we can't change how she's constructed or put her story together. So one one story in particular that really sticks out to me is it, it said something to that. There was a sentence in there that said something to the fact of and President Trump continues to falsely claim without evidence that the election was stolen or, or something to that effect. But the one thing I do know is I was just blown away by the fact that it said falsely claims without evidence. That's three qualifiers. So falsely, you've added that adjective in. Claims is known in journalism that you very much don't want to use that word because there's an undertone to it. It's like saying this person's what, what they're claiming is likely not true. So it's, it's a leading uh, way to say it. And then, and then added without evidence. Now, in contrast, the appropriate way that I was taught in, in journalism is that sentence should have looked more like President Trump says the election was stolen. However, Democrats and election officials say they can't find any evidence of that. So at least in that, you have both sides given. You don't have an adjective thrown in. You don't have several adjectives thrown in. But that one really stuck out to me because I was like, this is just so overkill. <laughs> this is so overkill. Um, so I was feeling uncomfortable with that. There was um, a lot of younger people in our newsroom. Basically, me, my co-anchor, and our main meteorologist would kind of huddle for the day and update each other on what was going on with politics not inviting anyone else into these little meetings. Um, but we had coworkers that went to management and complained that we were talking too much about politics. And it's like, we're the news. <laughs> How are we not supposed to talk about politics? It's, it's overwhelming the chunk of our show. We need to download each other, find out what else you're hearing, I'm hearing, you know. It's so, I mean, but, but these younger, this younger generation, like couldn't even handle hearing anything other than the accepted narrative. They didn't want to hear about what other reports were saying. When I feel, and so did, or does my counterpart, um, that it is our responsibility <laughs> to make sure that we're not only reading what we're going to be reading to you, if you will, but to be going above and beyond to dig up any other information that could be relevant that our audience may need to hear. And so that required discussions that required hearing the other side and discussing the other side. So we have now reached just, I, I know that news has never been perfect, trust me, but this has just gotten so out of control that it's, it's very sad to me because I love journalism. I love collecting information and then delivering it to, to my listeners. And then you decide. So 
when I received, I was struggling with this and I was praying to God, like, man, I just, there's so much division. There's so much misinformation and I'm just feeling complicit. Like every day I go in and, and being asked to either one work harder and try and fix these scripts before they go out or two, just reading what I felt like was just bogus. <laughs> I just felt extremely uncomfortable with that. So, um, God answered my prayer in a very unlikely way. <laughs> and I got a phone call and was told, um, you're one of hundreds being laid off because of the pandemic. <laughs> so, but what was interesting about that phone call is it should have been so scary having moved my kids across the country for this job and getting this phone call. But I, and of course some worries did come but at the time when I got that call, it was kind of a sense of relief and thank you God for <laughs> deciding for me because maybe mm -hmm. this isn't a decision that I was necessarily brave enough to make because it affected others, my children and my ability to provide for them. But, um, God gave me that nudge, <laughs> if you will, to be like, well, this is decided and now what's next. And so that, um, started a journey of, of, of course, worry and anxiety and, but also, um, just figuring out what do I want to do? I know I want to do what I love, but I can't do it this way. So I, um, I pivoted, you know, I talked to a pro basketball player recently, I interviewed him because part of my, my goal is to not only provide context and balance for news and to kind of be teaching other people to what to watch out for, but also to continue to give positive messages and, and motivation. And when I was interviewing this pro basketball player that his, his career got derailed because of COVID, uh, we talked about that basketball term pivot and how when a pivot is when you have one foot on the ground, but you're, you're turning, you know, turning around, but you still have one foot there. And so that's what I feel like I did and am doing that. I still have one foot in my passion and, and what I want to do, but I've pivoted. I've, I've gone in a different direction. I'm still doing what I want to do, but I'm going into the, into the direction of, of really digging and really helping to try and provide balance and to teach people how to push back when they're getting gaslit by the media and the, the accepted narrative. And um, so that is my goal. That's what I've been doing. I'm continuing to evolve with how I want this to all look and what to do with it. But that is where my focus has, has gone. <laughs> that answers that question. Now you did, um, do you want me to go ahead and talk about this latest article this week? Um, yeah, in a minute. Um, okay. I, ju I just, um, I treasure that you told the personal story. We don't get to hear, you know, uh, the personal stories of what happens to journalists who are trying to be honest and honorable because so few of them are willing to throw their jobs away in effect and um, to uh, speak out about it. In a sense, you're like a whistleblower. By the way, are you comfortable telling us what um, what the station, not, 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 not in California, but what national uh, ABC, NBC, or uh, who who you were dealing with, you don't have to. But if it's a comfortable thing, oh no, it's fine. It's uh, it's all fine. Um, so where I was at was a Fox affiliate, but it was owned by Sinclair Broadcast Group. So um, sometimes, and that's another thing that not everyone knows is is just because something's a Fox affiliate doesn't mean that they're owned or have any correlation with Fox Core. Um, 
But oh, yeah, case, I wouldn't have known that in a million years. Yeah, so it was a Fox affiliate, but they didn't have they don't have any connection with Fox National. Now right. there's um, there's share agreements like where we would play some Fox National because it was the Fox uh, affiliate. But beyond that, as far as ownership control, there's nothing there. So we were on like Sinclair Broadcast Group owns Fox news stations. They own NBC stations. They own. Um, CBS, it, it doesn't really matter the, the overarching company. And so that's another thing about news that I don't think a lot of people know is that um, news has very limited ownership and the sharing makes it ripe for sharing misleading or um, inaccurate stories. And we saw that happen out of most recently out of Oklahoma. And so I'll, I'll tell this story real quick. So Oklahoma had uh, posted this story that um, patients overdosing on ivermectin were backing up hospitals and, and ambulances in rural Oklahoma. Well, this story was put out, like I said, by a local Oklahoma affiliate, which is, was owned by Nexstar Group. So they put out this story. And so each of their affiliates across the country that were also owned by Nexstar Group ran with the story. The problem was, was the story was completely false bogus <laughs> from the get-go. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't even sound <laughs> right. And what was so heinous about this, as I dug into the story a little bit more, was KFOR had just run a story one week prior, one week prior to this sensational story, that their poison control centers had gotten calls of people overdosing on ivermectin from May until August, um, 11 calls, 11 call, calls from people complaining about nausea and diarrhea um, from taking ivermectin, the horse medicine, not prescribed by a doctor, little minor detail. And um, 11 people over the course of three to four months. And and one week later, they say that ivermectin overdose patients are clogging up hospitals, making ambulances being backed up. Does that even make sense? 11 people over the course of three to four months spread out over all that time that would cause such havoc? One, that doesn't make any sense. And then two, one of the hospitals that were affiliated put out a statement and said, the doctor that you interviewed has, uh, hasn't worked here in two months. What he said is not true. We're, we haven't had any backup. So then I called the other hospitals, the one uh, that he, this doctor was affiliated with, and they said, no, wasn't true, wasn't happening at their hospital. And then um, the, the third hospital that was called that he was affiliated with said they had a handful of patients, which is an interesting way to put it. Is, is that a, a medical term? Handful of <laughs> patients <laughs> have shown up to your hospital with ivermectin overdose. And then what are the what are the logical follow-up questions? Did they did they take up an ICU bed? Did it cause people to wait? So the the whole story was completely bogus. And they they from the get-go, they had one source, one source, one doctor making this claim. And um with with no vetting, not, no further step of calling the hospitals and verifying what he was saying true. Also, no vetting on the fact that he, it appears he'd been fired from his last job. You can look up court documents that said he had um, medical negligence, that he um, had a breach of contract with his former employer. But none of these extra steps were taken to vet the story. And this is the power of um, an acceptable narrative. Since it was an acceptable narrative, 
The other stations that were owned by Next Nexstar carried the story all across the country. It was picked up by Rolling Stone. It was picked up by MSN. It was picked up by Yahoo News. They all ran with this story that was completely fake, phony, and false. <laughs> and what I wanted to, another point I wanted to make about that is look at the reach. Look at the reach of a story that was unvetted, that was sensational and untrue, and yet. Our current administration talks about the dirty dozen of misinformation, one of them being a good friend of yours, I know, Bobby Kennedy. He's listed as one of the dozen that's responsible for all the <laughs> misinformation. But you're telling me 12 people on social media have more of an effect than one news station in Oklahoma that is under the ownership of network and all those stations can put this story out and then it get picks up by national which which is a bigger reach <laughs> 12 people or a whole industry a whole corporate controlled media machine <laughs> this is was insane to me and um very upsetting <laughs> because i in in 20 minutes what my husband and i were able to find to show that this story was completely fake, phony, and false. No other reporter, MSN couldn't do, Rolling Stone couldn't do. They all cited KFOR. They all, all those stations cited KFOR, the one local station, which had one source for their story, and it was all bogus. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> That's so important. Um, so important and, and we have another example but i want to kind of go in and out also with your story um because so many people are afraid they will get fired in this period of time for having an independent thought let alone speaking it you know like we become like children where mom says i can read your mind and we walk people walk around scared of even thinking thoughts i see that all the time now see that in the doctors i go to as a patient and if uh, some of the issues come up that I know so much about, they don't know anything, they they uh, they look frightened that I even bring up something like uh, like hydroxychloroquine actually has a whole bunch of studies showing how effective because they might show something on their faces that would get them in trouble. Like, it's a, a really quite terrible at what is going on right now in this sphere factor. Um, but I'd like to come back and before we go into some more of these these good, great stories about what's actually going on on the ground in journalism, um, because so many people have been fired and intimidated. So here I want to go to the story where you lose your job and it's like God's hand intervening. I've had experiences like that. Um, I won't get into them, but I've had experiences. <laughs> like I want you to talk. And um then you you made a decision to go elsewhere, and I you told me about that. I'd love you to talk about that decision to go elsewhere, and to talk about. And here I'm not sure what you'll say. I can guess to whether your life went downhill or got better once you were forced by God to <clears throat> take a stand. <laughs> sorts. So I'd love you to talk about just after California now. Okay. So um, when I found this out, um, I think I knew in my heart what God was calling me to. It had been on my heart for a long time. I was just so hung up on the, the how that 
um, it held me back. And I think that, that we do that. We get in our heads and, well, I don't know the how, so I can't do the what. But sometimes you just have to move forward and then start moving in that direction and, and figure it out. But as we as human fallen people do, <laughs> um, I, I was still resisting. I was still like, well, I, I don't know how I can make this work. So let me look at other things that I have had strengths in in the past. So in this journey, while I was kind of dabbling in how I and trying to fit form how I would, would work independent news, um, I was also getting distracted with like, um, I used to do more promotional things like commercials and such. So, and being in California, you know, I, I ended up doing, um, a commercial and doing more of promotional type stuff while I was kind of exploring this other option. And I was, um, engaged at the time, time I'm married now, but I was engaged, um, at the time. And he kept on telling me like, quit getting distracted with that. Like, you know what you're supposed to do, <laughs> like just let's get you out of California. He's like, first things first, let's get you out of California. So he and I had been in, um, a, uh, in a long distance relationship. He was, the original plan was that he was going to join me in California. But then when I lost the job, um, we pivoted <laughs> into a new plan. So, um, I had met my fiance uh, in Ohio. And so he's like, let's just get you back home and we'll, we'll get married there. Let's just get it done. <laughs> and, um, and so I went back to Ohio and, and, um, all through this planning and process of getting my things back across the country after only a little over a year having moved there, um, we were just, uh, talking and planning about what we could do with, with a podcast or on the internet or, you know, and just planning. And so what we ended up doing is, um, I moved back to Ohio and we got, um, married, Two weeks after I had moved back to Ohio, I still had a pod of all my stuff in California and um, then uh, got married. And then one week later, we hopped in a car and drove to Texas <laughs> and with, with no house, no set out plan entirely. Um, and uh, so we, so we Ohio was uh, Ohio was a terrible place, too, in terms of shutdowns and the crazy governor and is that partly why you left to go to texas um partly yeah i mean because if i was gonna do something um i wanted to do it right and i wanted to have as much freedom and as much resources as i could could have i'd made some connections in, here in texas and so and there's I was telling you before that it's almost become like the podcast capital of the world around Austin. There's a lot of people um, broadcasting out of here. So I felt like it would be the best place for us to make connections and um, collaborate and things like that. So, so we stayed in an extended stay for seven days. And on the seventh day we got that we had to check out is when we got keys to a place that we could rent. So it just worked out really, really well. Um, and then I had, um, I had been on, Alex Jones's show myself. Um, when I left the business, he, he interviewed me kind of, as you said, as a whistleblower to say what's really happening behind the scenes. And, um, so I had that connection there and, um, he asked me if I would contribute my reports and do some work for him. And, um, obviously that was a good situation. And, um, so I've just been able to collaborate with other shows, but also, um, with Alex, uh, 
filling in as a guest host and contributing my reports to his massive audience, which I could not turn down, obviously. So um, that mm -hmm. worked out really well. Yeah. <clears throat> it certainly worked out really well for me and for, I think, America, <clears throat> that you got sent from California to Texas and to Alex Jones. And did you know Alex before that? So, I mean, much in the same way that you had heard of him, I just had heard he was um, a conspiratorialist, you know, and, um, but it's funny, my, my parents had been fans of his for years. <laughs> so when they heard about it, they were just so like, they were having a fan moment. <laughs> they were, they were uh, big fans. And um, also actually, my husband had followed him as well. So um, I didn't know of him as well as my parents and my husband, but um, it, it's funny how once you get to know him and get to see what he puts out, he's very different than, of course, than, than he's portrayed. I find him to be a very kind and compassionate person. And when I had a meeting with him, as far as um, if I would contribute to him or not, I said, I told him what was important to me. I said, um, I don't want to be sensational like I that's not I appreciate that's who you are but I am trained in journalism I just want a platform to put out news that gets hidden or and also expose the mainstream news for how poorly their their journalism is going and um and so he was very respectful of that that I'm not a female Alex Jones if you will you know so um that I appreciated. And, and he, I appreciate the freedom that he gives me. Like I'm not getting directives from him, maybe suggestions at times, but no, not, I mean, it's different as far as in mainstream news, these are the stories we have to cover today. This is like what our rundown looks like. So to suddenly go from that to um, having so much freedom <laughs> was almost uncomfortable at first. And I thought about that. I'm like, Man, when you are in a system that controls you and th it, there's an element of getting almost comfortable with ha having directives, right? And just think about that like in our everyday life. Like if, if we as a society get too comfortable with our lives being <laughs> controlled, then it might end up feeling a little uncomfortable at first to suddenly have our freedoms back. Oh, it just absolutely. kind of was enlightening. It was kind of enlightening in that respect as far as the comparison to have been in journalism for 20 years and have it go a certain way and almost getting so comfortable with that, that once I had, was given freedom that to, I did, I felt uncomfortable at first. Um, but now, I mean, the more that I'm, I'm able to explore and create and discover um, it's great. <laughs> it's so different and it's, it's more fulfilling and I feel a better sense of purpose and I feel better about what I'm doing. Yeah, well, that's a wonderful example. And what I was uh, getting at when I asked you about your story, which now I really hear, um, and it's certainly my experience in gingers that we, we took this scary jump uh to, to just let go of <clears throat> this uh, wonderful identity of conscience of psychiatry <laughs> very lonely identity um 
But what I'd done in all the books on psychiatry had just leap into a whole new medical area. And for Ginger, it meant reading tons of science she'd never read before and learning the words, learning the meanings and analyzing these articles, uh, uh, whereas she'd never done that before outside of psychiatry. And, um, and what we found was an immediate liberation. It was like, oh, yeah, you do what you're supposed to be doing. And we were supposed to be doing that. And everything that's followed with the friends we've made, um, I feel like almost everyone I have on the show um, is somebody I could call up and say, hey, hey I'm in trouble. Uh, could you hide me somewhere or something? You know? <laughs> and everybody would say yes. Um, and it's so different. I never had that hardly at all when I was dealing with... Uh, uh, the issues surrounding psychiatry, where I was the most radical person, you know, and supposedly and everybody else was a little scared, a little admiring, and except for the victims of psychiatry, those loved those people who always loved us, obviously. But now it's like there's all of us seeing this light and and wanting to tell more of the truth about uh, about stuff. Um, this has been very enlightening. This is a, have you ever talked this much about it? <laughs> um, I mean, obviously more lately as I've um, had an opportunity to collaborate with others and, and tell them my experiences. Um, I but mean, on, I, but on been, the air, on film, have you talked about your story this much? I mean, not in in this fashion, I, I, I would say. I guess I've given yeah. like bits and pieces. Yeah. But it, like I said, it's it's been also self-discovery, some things that I didn't even realize were, were there until, you know, you fully, fully open up your mind and yes. you see the big, the big picture. I mean, one of those things is just reflecting back on this journey. When I first entered television news, cause I'd done some print news before then, but when I first entered television news, that was in 2008. And that was just when social media was starting to become relevant, especially in the context of news. Um, and then every year beyond that, um, make sure you're posting to social media. This is what we're doing with social media. And then, and then all of a sudden, um, in the stations I worked at, at the last, um, well, really all of them from that point forward, there would be a, a big screen and what it would show is a leaderboard and it would show I, this is another thing I don't know if people know about, but that behind the scenes of TV. So there would be a leaderboard and the talent would be on that board and it would show who was leading in um, engagements. It would also show who was leading in um, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, engagement for the station and their competition. So it was like, it obviously were competitive by nature as humans, it would spark um, wanting to be on the top of that leaderboard. So what are the ways that, and this is like for, for, for everybody across the country, what are the ways that these stations can get to be, to, can beat out their competition? And then I'll get to the individual side, but what are the ways for um, stations to beat out their competition in terms of social media engagement? Well, if you get a lot of comments and shares, how do you get a lot of people commenting on the, the news article or the question posed on Facebook? Well, you have a 
controversial topic or controversial question. <laughs> and then all of a sudden people are arguing in the comments. And what does that do to the station's numbers? Boom, 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 boom. You get up on that leaderboard, right? What did it do to us as journalists? Well, we found, and this is the sad state of society, we found as women, we would get more engagement, more likes, shares and stuff with a stupid selfie <laughs> than actual, than an actual, <laughs> story so in case in point there was a i they wanted us to make sure we were posting on social media three times a day on each platform so sometimes with everything else i'm juggling i did take a selfie whatever there there's one there's one down right and i remember one day in particular i was so irritated because i had a stupid selfie that had all these likes and stupid comments of course and then i had had an investigative piece that i'd been working on for two weeks and it was a good piece i won an associated press award for it and it had like a handful we'll use that word again handful of likes mm -hmm. and shares i'm like really this is our society and get all that engagement from a stupid selfie compared to a project you've been working on for weeks this is the dumbing down of our culture. We are reduced to competing for engagement on social media. And we do it by asking dumb questions from news organizations. I know you've seen them. Dumb questions from your local TV station. Like, what's your favorite Halloween candy? Vote A for Reese's, B for... You know why they're doing that? Because they know you're going to answer because people want to give their opinion. But they, they, they do those stupid, dumbed-down things for engagement. They also pose these controversial questions so that you will argue in the comments so they can boost their numbers up. And it's all advertising. It's all, it's all for the almighty dollar. Yeah, the advertisers want the biggest numbers. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I'm sure. This is all so good on a personal uh, <laughs> level. Now, we've had a very interesting experience in that we had two strikes on um, YouTube, social media. YouTube is really social media. And um, I mean, it was really funny. One strike was for uh, my the article in, that we'd done a year earlier that uh, caused uh, Trump to uh, get the information and cancel the, um, the collaboration with China, making uh, SARS-CoV viruses that later used in the pandemic, building up to SARS-CoV-2. And, uh, and the other one was for interviewing a man I knew well, very good man who wrote a book critical of uh, SSRI uh, antidepressants, something that I was uh, the leader in years ago. Um, so we just we just decided rather than get three strikes, we'll just shut down, cool off, and start looking for other places to put up our stuff. And we got all of our current stuff up on Brighteon, which is um, you know the uh, Health Ranger. Um, oh my gosh, I'm blocking on his name. Mike so, Adams. Mike Adams. Mike he's such a good guy, and um, he's going to be interviewing me in a couple of days. And um, awesome. Well, we would be interviewing really good people on YouTube, um, like Peter McCullough, who's become a friend and is a, a, one of the people who wrote introductions to and is uh, to the bar book. And is probably the most outstanding scientist in the field of COVID-19 treatments. There's no question about it, I think. And um, he would come on YouTube and we would get um, 8,000 downloads, 9,000 downloads. Well, we've been just a couple of weeks on Brighteon, 
And yesterday, after 24 hours with my most recent interview with McCullough, we had 33,000 downloads. So, folks, get free. Get free and build your own platforms. Ginger has become a publisher. And this is going to be one of the most successful books that she and I have ever co-authored or or that I've uh, authored alone. Um, well, hopefully. I mean, one of the books we co-authored way back was uh, Talking Back to Prozac, and I think we sold 800,000 copies. But we, we may or may not do that now. But it's just, it's going well to be to be breaking loose. And I hope that's just going to happen with you. Now, we've, we've got now about... Um, just to catch you up, we've got about 12 minutes, um, 13 minutes. Um, you t- you told me, and it's right in line with all this, a very interesting story. And just as a brief introduction to it, um, I personally know more people who have died from the vaccine than from COVID-19. Um, and I'm meeting other people in the same place. And the deaths from COVID-19 reported to the CDC now in September are, I think, 14,000. And folks, to to give you an example of what it means to have 14,000 reports to the CDC of death closely related to the vaccine, mostly coming from professionals, um, in previous years, the total deaths from all vaccines reported to the CDC in a year would be about 120, 125, something like that. So we're talking about a catastrophe. And in the past, if you had uh, 10, 12 deaths, there was an investigation, and um, and you would take it down. You'd eventually take down the vaccine before it got to, you know, higher and and uh, that happened with the bird flu vaccine, um, it, you know, with the they died, I think, uh, 40, 50 deaths, but it was just taken down. And this vaccine also didn't work very well. The H1N1 I was talking about vaccine. Mm-hmm. So uh, and now we have a report here in Ithaca. We haven't had any reports of death here in a long time in Tompkins County, Ithaca, upstate New York. But now there's a first death reported, and it's of somebody who had been fully vaccinated or Opiate of an older man, very old, ninety-four, um, and and um, you know, reportedly having other illnesses, but it's still the first reported death, because um, this is what happened with animal studies. I predicted this in in March a year ago, because the animal studies showed that older animals that were vaccinated or immune compromised animals that were vaccinated with uh, really different kinds. Basically, I think it was, you know, any kind of COVID-19 vaccine. If they then got the disease, they got it. They get exposed. A lot of them then got it, as we're seeing now, and and many of them died. So I was warning about this whole works way back. They knew all this. So you have a a related experience to that. And um, with with a radio question that was asked to the public, uh, tell that story. Well, for one, um, I interviewed uh, a man at the at a rally who has lot who had lost his son, his sixteen year old son from the jab, oh, and God. his his story was that he was hearing on the news that it was safe. Um, he wanted his son to get well, 
Um, so he got his 16 year old son vaccinated and his son died three days later, um, from what they call an enlarged heart. Um, and then it was then that he started hearing these reports about that, that could, it could cause heart issues for teen, especially teen males. And just, just obviously so sad about losing his son, but underneath that, he just, he, it was, um, I want to find the right word for it. It was just this like despair of of betrayal. Like, mm-hmm. wow, wow. Like my news, my government lied to me. Like I did not know this information. So um, he is raising money to go to Washington. He wants to get more help from um, Congress to know about his story because he shut down. He had a uh, uh, GoFundMe page. And he raised the amount needed. And then the GoFundMe said, our condolences, but we're shutting down this page. So he had to start all over again with gifts and go. And he quickly made that money back up. But he can't hardly get anyone to listen to. Wait a minute. They shut down his page and kept his money and kept his money? I I believe that money goes back to the, the donors. But just the... Just, I mean, to the arbitrary. But, but it didn't go to him. Didn't go back to no, him. It didn't. No, oh, it my God. Back, it goes That's back theft. to people, I it's think. Theft. Oh, I know. It, it, it's absolutely despicable. And, and it's arbitrarily um, and who, what, chosen what, that they did. What organization did that? What uh, social media? GoFundMe. GoFundMe. Um, he raised his amount and then they said, uh, our sympathy, but um, you've violated our community guidelines. And so the money will be returned to the donor. So he had to start all, all over. But that was um, a, a side note that what I wanted to get into, and I'll try and do this quickly, was... Um, the t- take so your time the- so you can just uh, save <laughs> okay. it. and. Uh- okay. So WXYZ... This is out of Detroit, an ABC affiliate. They posed a question on their Facebook, and it went something like this. After vaccines were approved, did you end up losing any of your unvaccinated loved ones? If, you, if you're willing to share your story, please contact, contact us. So it's not so um, unusual for a news station to crowdsource, is, is what they call it, to, to pose a question and, and ask, you know, basically to get interviews. What is so despicable about this question is it's just so leading. They they obviously only want to hear stories from people who have lost unvaccinated loved ones. And it's it's just so typical of the narrative that they're pushing. They don't pose a, a more fair question like, you know, have you lost any loved ones since the pandemic be, began? any unvaccinated or have you heard of any vaccination? It's it's just one-sided. This is the narrative that we want to put out there. So let us know if we can take your story to, to, for our, our agenda, our already predetermined story, right? Um, and what was funny, what well, was not funny um, by any means, but I guess ironic, you could say, is that this post was shared over 60,000 times. I think it was like 67,000 times. And the comments were flooded with people that say, what about my grand grandfather that I just lost just days after the jab? Or what about my mother who just had a heart attack after getting the jab? Um, or uh, uh, why are you asking for anybody that um, now has to deal with 
continually continual strokes after getting vaccinated. Just comment after comment after comment. If you go to this um, this post, and someone even said, you know, this isn't the reaction that you were hoping for. You hear some leads. Will you actually follow up on any of them? So it completely backfired on them. People are, I think, starting to wake up to that there is an agenda, that there is a narrative that they want to push out fear, 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 and and that unvaccinated are bad and unvaccinated are going to die. And people are waking up to it and they got called out and good for them because, I mean, it was, like I said, comment after comment of people um, saying the what happened bad out of the vaccination, not only deaths, but also people living with with chronic conditions. Like another lady told a story of her dad can't get his nose to stop bleeding. I mean, and a lot of these things, of course, since they're, they're comments, they're, they're just comments on a Facebook post. Of course you can't necessarily verify each and every one. But again, what I'm appealing to my audience that pushes back on me is, okay, well, let's look at motivations. What motivation do people have to, to, would people have to lie about losing a loved one or putting this narrative out that they have concerns? What motivation? Do they make money off of it? Do they get fame? Do they get praised? Um, <clears throat> now let's look at the motivation of the other side. You have Big Pharma in bed with Facebook and bed with the networks, and, and they all stand to make money in conglomeration with our current administration wanting to achieve its goals. So it's just like, it, it, sometimes it just comes down to analysis of what logically makes sense as far as motivations. That is actually one of the tenets of journalism given by the Society of Professional Journalists is to examine conflicts of interests and, and motivations. Where is that? Where has that gone? Why aren't more journalists examining who is making money off of this? Who, how it would hurt the the pharmaceutical industry if there were early, if there was viable early treatment? What does that mean for them? Would they have gotten their emergency use authorization if if there was any good press about early treatment? I mean, it's just it's so disheartening to see that these basic foundational tenets of journalism have just poof gone out the window. Where are the mass amount of journalists that are even just simply looking at conflicts of interest and motivations? That's going to tell you more than anything. Well, fortunately, <clears throat> Ginger and I feel very proud about writing the book that answers those questions as best as anybody's Way, way deeper than any other book. And um, again, folks, you you can you can get COVID nineteen and the global predators. Those that's the, the how we are identifying the folks behind it. And by the way, uh, um, at least one one um, critical medical organization now has has adopted predators as the term to use in describing the people we're investigating. I learned that this week. Um, and um, you can get it by going to wearethepray.com. Wearethepray.com, and you'll get the book at the cheapest that it will ever be, and much less than it might end up being on the, on uh, any of the uh, bookstores and so on. Uh, wearethepray.com, and you can buy it all if you're in Canada or the U.S. 
if and the thing I like about I love about your book, Doctor, and the effort you and, and Ginger, your wife put yeah. into that. Yeah. Um, the thing I love is that you guys were right on the spearhead of this thing. You were starting to document and look into these things at the very beginning of the pandemic. And you can see that it, you follow it throughout the whole thing. And I know you were updating up until the very end. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah. I just, I love that. It's so cohesive. That's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Welcome. When you sell, when, when you have Ginger Bregan as your publisher, you can do the as, and I'm the writer of the book, but she's uh, at least well, I'd say more research than me. Yes, and she does nearly all my connections to the great doctors and lawyers around and other people, uh, people like you. She does all that connecting. One of the things about having the publish, living with the publisher, is that I got to update that book within one month of publication, and I'm looking at other books that are coming out now. They're backdated a year, and that's what you—that's what you have when you have a publisher, regular publisher. So, folks, you're seeing this book um, come, come roaring out right, right off the, right off my typewriter, uh, and with lots and lots of new editions going on. This has been a really a lovely uh, talk, and I don't want to end it yet, uh, Christy <laughs> Lee. Um, one of the things that um, that you and I talked about briefly at the start and we got into a little bit is just the importance, this is so important, of being able to to decide you're going to you're gonna live in a way that you're not compromised. And um, it's such a critical, critical thing to do. And and my experience, I know for a lot of people, this is just not gonna just gonna say, you know, nah, life's not like that. When I have taken those big risks for the for the good, the the good of humanity, especially when I'm just sure it's for freedom and it's for human response, personal responsibility, remarkable things happen. And um, I uh, I I quit a. Uh, a position I'd held talking to several million people every week um, on coast to coast, uh, basically because they now had a policy I couldn't talk about COVID-19. And I thought, if I'm the resident psychiatrist on this show, and I've been there for a decade, a decade almost, and, and if I'm uh, going on every day, every week, and five or six, seven minutes talking about public events. And I act as if COVID-19 is not going on and I can't criticize it. I might as well be like uh, some talking head at CNN because I'm giving the impression there's nothing to fight and nothing mm. to be afraid of. And so almost tearfully, you know, I, I end up withdrawing from, from um, uh from it and and it was interesting it took place in part because one of the people working there was just very unpleasant and i thought gee i would i would do unpleasant forever if i was helping humanity and i thought why am i doing this what i'm so happy to tell people i talk to perhaps three six million people every week and and i'm the resident psychiatrist and all that and i when i stopped the media 
who knew nothing about it. It's the first time I talked about this in public, first time. Yeah. We've been inundated with people. Um, and uh, Alex Jones and you, you came after that happened. And um, it really seems to be, I mean, I'm not a theologian and my concept of God is is simply I know there's a presence and I know I can be responsive to goodness and love. And if I realize there is a presence, <laughs> I'm going to do it more. <laughs> um, so I'm not a complex theologian in any of that stuff. I really feel very limited, in, except I have a personal experience of this. And, um, and you have it. And so many of the people I interview have it, and sometimes we talk about it on air and sometimes not. So just just believe in yourself, folks. Believe there's something higher going on. Join others in the fight for, for liberty now, individual freedom, political freedom. Oh, gosh. Christy <laughs> Lee, thank you for being on the Dr. Peter Bregan Hour. Congratulations. Oh, gosh. And thank you for um, really helping change my life by uh, by by um, inviting me onto your show when you when you have a slot on uh, on, on uh, the war room with Alex Jones. And because it really shifted us further into uh, just enormous advanced book selling, getting this book out, enabling us to buy more. Our first printing is 20,000. That would usually be somebody who thinks going to have a bestseller. And uh, it was, and that's enabled us to get the book cheaper and to be able to sell it cheaper. And just, uh, you, you know, you've been an important part of that in a very short time. So thank you so much. And as I always end, thank you, my wonderful audience, for taking seriously what you hear here. This is serious talk. Thank you for taking it seriously and let it let it help change your life for the better. Thank you, Christy.